one thing I learned is surprising in my career is that the human instinct is often wrong. If I change this color from blue to red, the people will like that. That's your opinion. You are just one person. Even you have 20 years of experience in this field, you could be wrong. I can show you tons of examples that the data will show you totally different than what you thought to be right. Welcome to the Data Chief. The Data Chief is a podcast for data and analytics leaders to share their personal stories and insights on technology, culture, and leadership. As the world continues to fill with impersonal, factory-machined goods, so increases the desire to see and feel more human creativity in the items we use in our lives. Etsy, a community marketplace for creative goods, was designed to help people sell their unique and homemade items online. The company continues to innovate and transform the small business world, leading by focusing on innovation in their technology. Today's guest, Chu Sheng Shi, is the first chief data officer at Etsy. On this episode, he joins Cindy to discuss his unique perspective on helping build a data-driven organization from the ground up and how he's fostered a culture of experimentation that has led to rapid growth and transformation within the company. He also dives into trends such as machine learning and data observability and explains some of the most helpful mental frameworks he's learned in his life and career. Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for anyone to analyze your company's data with search and AI. Business people from companies like Walmart, Hulu, Schneider Electric, Cloud Academy, and Mercado use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. You can learn more at ThoughtSpot.com. Chu Chen, welcome to the Data Chief. Thank you for having me here. Looking forward for the conversation today. I am too. Etsy is one of the most beloved brands in our household, and I understand it is for you and your family as well, both from a work viewpoint, but also products. Oh, thank you for saying that. I love Etsy. That's why I joined here. <laughs> First off, I guess you're joining us from the Bay Area, but maybe to confirm that in this work from anywhere world. Yes, I'm still living in Bay Area, and our headquarters is in New York. So, but uh, in this world, it probably doesn't matter. <laughs> exactly. And so, tell me, what are some of your favorite things you've discovered on Etsy or bought through Etsy? Well, I would say Etsy is a very unique place because, as you can see, um, like uh, they they help us. They help the people to sell their homemade and unique items online. And when I first arrived at Etsy, uh, what I saw is they even have their own, I would say, workshop inside their building. So every employee can also go there and learn how to uh, build uh, things they want to sell on Etsy. And you can also learn a lot of skill, like knitting and uh, you know painting. And I think this is super cool. That is super cool. I was going to have prepared for you to show you. I don't know why we buy our return address labels from Etsy, except that they have a cute black bear on them. <laughs> and, and in New Jersey, we have black bears, but then everyone in the world would know my home address. So I couldn't show that to you. <laughs> yes, this sounds very interesting. Yes. Yes, yes. Good. So, Shushan, you've been in this space for a very long time. And I think what's fascinating is you made an early career choice 
to be a practitioner rather than a professor. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I think that's actually a, a like a, for anyone who gets a PhD, usually their dream job is to become a professor or a scientist. I think that's uh, usually the reason people get a PhD because it requires four or five years of investment of your life. And I'm very fortunate and I, I'm very glad I go through the program and meet a lot of wonderful researchers and professors and I work with them. I, I still enjoy my time uh, when I was in UCLA. And, um, but I think very soon, you know, when you start to learn more about the space, just like a, when you're sitting outside of the fence, you, you, you don't know really what the inside. And I think when I started my PhD, I know I enjoy uh, kind of research, but the things that actually uh, make me feel excited is to really building product that uh, you know, affect people's life using a cutting edge stage, you know, the state of the art technology. So at the end of the moment, I kind of think knowing that uh, I ask myself a very simple question, like I say, I can only have one life. So I can either become a professor or I can do something different. So I kept using something called regret minimization framework. I think Jeff Bezos mentioned this in one of the talk. Basically, I close my eye, imagine there are 30 years from today, and I'm talking this my life story with my grandson or my like a, or my or talk to my wife. And I think which kind of story will make me more feel excited and happy. And I, I very soon realized I won't have too much regret to become a professor because I already taught before I got a PhD at the university. I kind of know what the life looked like. But I'm really, really curious what it will be the life in Silicon Valley and become, you know, industrial. So that's the reason I kind of choose a different path back then. Yeah. So not living with regret. I think that's um, a good way of living. I don't know that I could think about a 30 year year span, I think in smaller slices. And you definitely have had multiple slices, but all in Silicon Valley with some of the hottest companies, whether it's Google, Amazon, Intuit, and now Etsy. Tell us what that's been like and how have you come to focus specifically on the data and analytics side of things? Yes, I think I started doing um, this kind of machine learning or data job actually a long, long time ago before it became a thing. I mean, we keep changing them, but I remember when I first learned this, we called the data mining like 20 years ago, right? And then we called it big data and of course data machine learning, AI, deep learning, yeah, or statistics. Yeah, statistics. <laughs> At one point, it was statistics. <laughs> exactly. So the name keeps changing. But fundamentally, I think of what uh, I, I learned in my career is what I'm really interested in is I can even write the code as a software engineer. And to me, data is just a, I call it a software, software engineering 2.0. It's that you write the software to process data. And this data will generate another software which will behave in a certain way that they derive from the data. So I think that's basically what I see the, the new world of writing program. And I always enjoy like dealing with computers or also human beings. And I think to me, um, working in different company, one of the reasons is um, like about 10 years in my career, I switched to a management role. And I, I start to uh, kind of explore different like uh, uh, size of the company and also different kind of product company. But uh, I always stay in the e-commerce space. 
So to some extent, my field doesn't change too much. Always on search recommendation, information retrieval. I still active on a conference like a triple W CIR recommendation systems. So I think my field doesn't change too much. And of course, company, um, you know, this big company have different divisions. So naturally, like um, when I have an opportunity in Silicon Valley, I also have a lot of friends and, and connections. So, so to some extent, I'm very fortunate to have an opportunity to serve in uh, many uh, outstanding companies. Actually, not like a long time ago, I also worked for eBay and also worked for Yahoo. Probably not on my LinkedIn, yeah. but it's a long time ago. Um, still, like, uh, you know, I'm very fortunate to work with all these like, wonderful companies in my career. Yeah, and all these digital natives. But you did say something that I think is important about how perhaps at one point in time, the way organizations view data was separate from the, let's say, application, the business application or operational application, whereas you have always seen it as being part of that. Did I understand that correctly? Yes, I always, with some part of the different data journey, in one of the talk I give, I talk about six layer of, like the paradigm I describe. It's all the way from how you collect data, you transform data, eventually derive machine learning model and build the insight. And in my career, I basically, you know, live in this paradigm. I work in almost every space of the paradigm. I do some data cleaning. I write a machine learning model. I'm also like very familiar with SQL. Actually, I taught SQL language or data language at UCLA uh, when I was studying my PhD there. And of course, now I'm dealing with business decision, acquisition, but still we need to uh, make a lot of decisions based on data. So I would say that uh, I think data is an ecosystem. It helped not just generate the code, but also today it's part of decision-making for many business leaders. Yeah, so it's part of the business decision-making for leaders. And so now you as the new CDO, relatively new, CDO at Etsy. What was it that attracted you to Etsy at this point in time? I'm the first CDO at Etsy. So before me, there no another CDO. And at the time when I have this opportunity, I ask myself the same framework whether I will be regret. Of course, I want to live in New York and you know enjoy the East Coast. This <laughs> one thing definitely attracted me. And um, myself and my family and my friends, we all love Etsy. That's, of course, another reason that uh, we, 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 I think Etsy is a place that I really want to work for them. And, but I think fundamentally is when I joined Etsy, we are happen to be in a journey to move from a data center to the cloud. So we eventually pick Google as our partner. And that's how I also uh, work as a Google advisory board member in Google that uh, helped them to set up a product strategy. But my full-time job is at Etsy to, to help them to make the most value out of the data they have. I think even I say this 20 years of journey, but the data become the new oil or like become something that uh, people really, really feel the power of that is starts probably a few years ago. So I think, of course, the whole theory can last for many, many years. But I think starting probably uh, five years or seven years ago, you start to see this title like chief data officers in big companies. And even today, um, I think uh, there are still many companies that don't have such a role. But uh, I believe this will be the future that uh, more and more company will be finding the 
the reason that they should invest in, in having a data executive in their leadership team. Yeah, and it might be um, a matter of the size that Etsy has grown to, whereas let's say data would be a part-time role for somebody else. Maybe it's the rapid growth at Etsy as well. Yes, we uh, like Etsy has been growing uh, very rapidly because we have new leadership team. Um, the Josh Silverman, our CEO, and Mike Fisher, our Mike Fisher, our CTO, we uh, kind of they joined the company about four or five years ago, and um, and the Etsy happened to, of course, during the, the this COVID, everyone stayed at home. And e-commerce, like uh, people joke about three years in three months, right? So <laughs> the three year of digital transformation happened in three months. So things going very, very quickly in the last uh, few years. Yeah, I don't think it's a joke. I think it's a reality. I, I think it's um, something that in a way it's been a positive. It's been a forcing function for many organizations. So you mentioned migrating your data center to the Google Cloud, and I would presume Google BigQuery, is that right? Yes, Google BigQuery is one of the key products we are using. And also many other uh, like products provided by Google. We're using uh, not just Google BigQuery, we're using basically all the Google technology, even the data pipeline, they have something called Dataflow. And, and also, of course, if you are doing machine learning, TensorFlow, which is very popular for doing machine learning and deep learning, uh, like models, we also use all of these product. Yeah, so they're a really important partner to ThoughtSpot, but I want to make sure um, a couple things. Everyone is trying to accelerate. If if they were not born in the cloud, they're trying to accelerate getting all their data into the cloud. As you went through that, are there any lessons learned or can we make it any easier or is it just it's hard? Uh, I would say, you know, it's non-negotiable today if you are not in the cloud. And here's the reason. Let me uh, just give an example to help people to, or executive or manager to know why this is necessary. Think about like, like another company who also on the cloud and they, they find a, like say a vulnerability or like a problem they need to fix. So anyone who finds a problem they fix will naturally just solve everyone else, right? So when when I think it is not really efficient to run your own uh, in hardware infrastructures as a software company. So the investment is actually pretty high. And also, if this is not your competitive advantage, investing in those data infrastructure doesn't really pay off. And like a a lot of e-commerce, um, you have holiday season, right? So imagine that the, your traffic will went to the roof during the Christmas, right? Then having cloud give you a lot of advantage because to some extent you can have elastic cloud, meaning that you can have on demand. You say, I need a, a 2X or 3X on my machine. And it's just a few button click away. Of course, you need to, if you really need to like a, add another 2,000 server, you need to give Google a heads up. But generally speaking, <laughs> You know, all this headache went away because all you need to do is just forecast the demand and then, you know, set up a planning and then click it and then problem solve. Yeah. So for sure, that elasticity um, is critical, especially in retail or coming out of the busy holiday season. The other thing is the ability to run some of these experiments um, more rapidly. So tell us a little bit how you've brought that experimentation culture and process to Etsy. 
as they always have an experiment cultures, but I think the, the fun fact is that uh, you can always find opportunity to improve your experiment. So there are actually uh, two things we spend a lot of time trying to, to improve since I joined at The first thing is, um, is you, how reliable you can trust the A-B test the result or experiment the results. So it's actually required a lot of statistical thinking because you know, human always made a mistake when they um, kind of uh, try to interpret the data based on instinct. Mm -hmm. And sometimes this is a mathematical problem. You just need to figure out how to do something in a statistical significant way so that you can trust the data. I think one thing, for example, we always joke about p-value. And p-value, like, a, you know, you can set p-value to 0 0.1, 0.05, but maybe very few exactly really know what's the difference between 0.05 and 0 0.1, right? And then and even the meaning of p-value, like people just know, oh, this is the value I can set. If I put it smaller, then I can get more accurate. But uh, is that really true? Like, do you really know what the p-value is? I think there are a lot of these, uh, I think as a data executive in the leadership team, I think one of the value having a, a data person sitting on the table is to help the executive team to understand the meaning of each this kind of setting and also understand like uh, how you interpret the results. And I think that's uh, kind of, to me, the, the first is like a reliability or trustworthy of how you interpret your data and set everything right. And the second thing is velocity. I think um, since I joined the company, uh, working with uh, my manager and also my peers, we are always trying to uh, like try more experiments and then learn from those experiments. One thing which is, Kind of, uh, I learned this surprising in my career is that the human instinct is often wrong. You thought that if I change this color from blue to red, the people will like that. That's your opinion. You are just one person. Even you have 20 years of experience in this field, you could be wrong. And I think I can show you tons of examples that the, the data will show you totally different than what you thought to be right is indeed not what your customer thought. And, and I think this kind of um, focusing on learning and using velocity as a way of measuring a learning speed is very critical because as a general trend in Silicon Valley, we want to fail fast. If we try something, we know it's not working. We want to try something different. I think this kind of incrementality introduces a lot of breakthrough. And as you can see, that we keep introducing new features, new style, and we, we rely on experience to tell us whether we are making a right decision or a wrong decision. So generally speaking, we don't uh, make a decision based on like our instinct or experience. We trust the experience results and use them to make the right decision. Yeah. So intuition or experience plus data, I think, is the most powerful combination. But is there an example that you're allowed to publicly share where maybe the experiment didn't or your A-B testing did not really reveal the results you expected or that it was wrong, that it later proved to be wrong? Yeah, I, I think one thing, for example, is, um, I will say this is actually uh, counterintuitive, is we always know that if you can get a faster results to, uh, like when people like browse your website, if, the, if you can show the results faster, then you can get the, like, the people are more likely to use the website. I think. Intuition, this is kind of make perfect sense. But the question here is that uh, 
Does there really a difference between 10 milliseconds or 12 milliseconds or 15 milliseconds, right? So intuition will say that the comma as a human, what's the difference between 10 milliseconds and 15 milliseconds? Probably we don't need to even care about this minor millisecond difference. But if you really try A-B test, you will find that, oh no, totally different. If you can speed up even just one millisecond, there are significant improvement, like, um, like user engagement and of course the revenue and everything is right. So it's kind of one example that uh, um, people can think about, like uh, even your intuition think one millisecond doesn't matter. It's actually matter because sometimes this one millisecond, especially for people who are using their mobile device, the user experience can be totally different, especially when the network is spotty. So I think we don't know why this is really matter. What we know is that uh, when you say one millisecond doesn't matter, you could be wrong. Right, right. So you're really using data um, not just for the machine learning, but for the product design, the shopping and website design, the mobile app design. Is that right? Yes. We'll actually test this on not just UI design and also um, on the algorithms. Like everything we can test, we always test before we uh, kind of formally launch that. So to some extent, um, one can assume that, uh, I mean, not just Edison, I think any modern website today they basically test everything before they launch it. Well, you hope they do. <laughs> I think that I think that depends on which industry and how analytically savvy uh-huh. they or how data savvy they really are. Or maybe disagree with me. I don't know. Yeah, I think if they have the uh, bandwidth or resource, of course, depending on the scale. If you are a star, only have ten people, like uh, you are still trying to find your market fit, then probably you don't have to do that. But the but what you do is just doing a longer turn of A-B test. You just launch something, wait for a few months and see how things goes. But still, you are test. It's just like a, how rigorous you want to be. Yeah, yeah. And so the other part um, that I've heard you talk about before is the idea. So you you spoke about educating the leaders about data but it's also about embedding machine learning experts inside every product team within Etsy. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? You know, there are a few things that has been changing the last few years. Um, if 10 years ago, um, machine learning, take machine learning class or AI class, it's very probably 50 students who took this class when they are in computer science or, or whatever uh, subject they, they, their major is. But today, almost every student, when they go to school, even they are not studying computer science, maybe they study management, they probably took an AI class or management class. Or you can go to Coursera, there are tons of introduction to machine learning, introduction to AI. So I would say one key difference, almost everyone in software industry, especially the new grad, they will be exposed to machine learning and AI. So in the past, there is a concept like AI is a bunch of nerds or scientists sitting in a lab, and then you know they come with this fancy algorithm, and then eventually uh, they push this out, doing A/B tests, and then we implement that. This is like an old model. Probably ten years ago, that's true, but this is not the case these days. We see so many people want to using data to improve their uh, software or product, and we also see almost everyone are starting getting educated on machine learning and AI. So instead of trying to create a special lab or a special cohort of people trying to focus on the top notch, like a, you know, kind of prototype and production, 
right now, we our general philosophy is that uh, we want to hire people with machine learning background or train people with machine learning background, and then we will have one or two, you know, senior very uh, like senior scientists which can join uh, the group to help to guide the direction. But the generally speaking, it's almost like a is assume and to train and to educate everyone, even the manager, to know the data, like a, like how you make using data make a decision, what is machine learning look like. I think it's a commodity today, in my opinion, and that's why we make this shift. Like at the SC, you will see in our job post as well. Like almost everything is looking for machine learning engineer, data scientist. Yeah, that's why. Yeah, yeah, very tight labor market. Although you use the term nerd and AI nerd and a lot in the industry use data geek. And I feel like we need to start a mission to make it like data rock stars. This is a cool space, not a geeky or nerdy space. It's now um, data is part of everyone's job. So I I don't see it geeky or nerdy at all. Same here. So I'm very fortunate that to see this trend comes to the real life, just like statistic help us to make better decisions. So anyone need to know some statistic for the same reason. Yeah, for sure. Now you're, um, so Xu Sheng, your six uh, levels in your pyramid, the top one that you had was insight. And I had to chuckle because then a little bit to the side, you put end action. And one of the trends that I wrote about for 2022 that I think we've been waiting for in the industry, but has been hard to get to, is closing that loop between insight and action. What are your thoughts on this? Is now finally the time when this is possible, or why is this still elusive? I would say that the people do action no matter you have insight or not, right? Like as a business... Um, to some extent that you try new things. And when I say using insight to, to decide action, to some extent, uh, doesn't mean you are always right. You know, there's a book called Thinking in Bats, which is a highly recommend if you are a data leader because you're a data person. So probability and bats make sense. And I think the core idea of that thinking in bats is that uh, you don't have to be right all the time. But what you try to do is that you don't want to judge your your success based on just outcome. You should judge your success based on the decision quality. And if you have a good insight, and and, and even outcome is better, I mean, this life like doesn't mean that you always be right. And if you want always to be right, there are very few things you can do. But one thing you can do is that uh, to invest in insight such that when you're making a decision, you know the, the reasons and insight behind the decision. And this gives you higher probability of making a right decision. So this concept of thinking in bets is what I kind of try to frame the, this pyramid is that uh, to use this kind of knowledge to help you to make a better quality decision. Yeah, I just had to quickly check it. Thinking in bets by Annie Duke. Yes. I did read this. She's the professional poker player, I think, right? Yes. We invite her to give a talk at Etsy as well. So. Oh, <laughs> interesting. Yeah, that, very good. She she has a good segment on resulting that even if you made the decision and you didn't get the desired outcome, it doesn't necessarily mean that it was the wrong decision. It was just what information you had available to you at the time. Yes. There's a, a joke, which I don't want to know which company I saw this joke is that the uh, Oh, you know, I once see a bug report to say, hey, you know, there's a bug. I said, okay, there's a bug. And they say that when I do X, 
Like I should see Y, but I see Z. And you know that in machine learning, anything is probability. So not every email you say is a spam mail, it's really a spam mail. So there's always a bug. So there's never, you, even you can reach 99.9%, you can still see a bug. Yeah. But you can fix that bug because if you fix that bug, it's something we call overfitting is that uh, you solve everything in the past, but for the future, the model doesn't work the way you hope them to operate. I think this kind of new thinking in the field is, is, is uh, something which I, I think is very critical for all the leaders in the field, especially if they are, you know, a lot of leaders here come from software background. So I think this kind of data thinking and, and, and probabilistic thinking and the, the insight or the decision outcome is not necessarily to be uh, related to the quality of the decision. I think all these interesting uh, kind of uh, insight are, are something that I always tell people to be open about it. There are many traps people can, can run into. Uh, for example, like, I think one of the common traps I saw is a lot of people were assuming correlation is causality. I will give an example. Like a, oftentimes when we see a data, we see X and Y. And let's say if X is number of advertisements you put online and Y is your revenue, and you see a positive correlation, you see, oh, if I increase my advertisement, I see better revenue. And many data were in their head, I mean, it's a human, so you're why in a way that uh, my instinct told me that I should invest my advertisement, I will get a better revenue. And, but he said, if you believe it replace X with like say, if you say X is ice cream sales on a beach, and then Y is like say, how many shock attacked on the beach? And you, all, you will also see a positive correlation but it doesn't mean that the sale more ice cream will means more shock, like to attack human being. It's just because it's summer. So everyone go to the beach and they buy more ice cream. So for the second example, people can easily know why this is ridiculous. But for the first example, when you only see the ads and then the, the, the revenue, sometimes people's mind will just naturally draw this kind of conclusion, like X will kind of introduce the Y. And this kind of causality is totally make no sense, statistically speaking. So I think this kind of training as uh, how you see correlation, how you see causality, and there are a lot of pitfalls that the people can run into. I gave a talk recently uh, at our NTC conference. I think the slides can be found on my LinkedIn, so uh, feel free to check that. I, I talk a lot of bios, like a survival bios, and talk about this kind of co correlation and talk about the, the, the sampling bios. There are a lot of things that, they, you know, if you don't pay attention, you'll easily just make a mistake on those bios and then make a wrong decision. Yeah, for sure. That correlation does not mean causality. And I have to wonder if that's part of the overall need for greater data fluency or data literacy for people to understand that. You mentioned sampling bias, and I know one of your foundational segments in your pillars is really about the quality of the data. I also find it really interesting that Andrew Eng recently came out with a challenge that he feels that the machine learning community has not paid enough attention to the basis of data. So do you agree with that? Um, were they not recognizing what biased data is and gaps in the data? Or what do you think? I believe that uh, our academic society encourage people to research on algorithms and not encourage people to kind of invest in data quality. Oh, interesting. 
Yeah, so this maybe doesn't mean friend in such a way. Usually, if you hope for A and you, but you, you incentive for B, this never work, right? So if you think about how you get your paper, get accepted. Usually, quite a, a reviewer, which I also serve in many conference committees, so we review papers. We, we pay attention more on your arguments and your contribution. Like uh, we want you to pick the same data. So the data should be the same, right? So it's apple to apple comparison. And so we always say this paper make a breakthrough because they come with better algorithm. But you are very rare see that uh, I'm using the same algorithm, but using better data. And that's why this paper gets selected. And I think that's probably what he refers to is that uh, academic actually is 10 years. I mean, just roughly just put a number there. It's like ahead of industrial application because they try something very cutting edge. And But the, the, the way... Uh, we incentivize the research is to focus on algorithm improvement and not trying to make the data cleaner or, or with a better resolved data. And naturally, this lead to the, the low-hanging fruit is that if you can improve your data quality in practice, often you can easily get a huge win. And most of the time, we don't, uh, as an industry, uh, you know, you hire people from school and they, they was trained academic. And so this bios is actually in their brand they come to the work and they naturally pay attention on algorithm, not on data. So this is what I believe he refers to is that they are way underinvest in making the data quality better. Yeah, so Xu Sheng, you just gave me an aha moment and an unfortunate aha moment because you're saying that it goes back to what's rewarded in academia. And so there is um, an emphasis on optimizing the model and yet, to me, having grown up through the data, more the data and analytics profession, it's obvious to me the model is only as good as the data you feed it. And isn't this why, of course, we have biased AI? The people building it, if they don't understand that foundational impact, it exacerbates biased AI. Yes, I think I can give a one example, which is not a surprise. Is if you, if I always say that when you build the AI model, you think about it's a it's a kid trying to learn from data. So you tell you here's the input, here's the data, here's the output, is a good behavior. You somehow create a reward and penalty so that this machine pick up the behavior through data, and eventually you send this machine outside as a module to operate, and. If, let's say if you are a website like Etsy, um, we have much more female shoppers than male shoppers. So naturally what the machine will pick up is a pattern that optimizes for female shopper if you don't pay attention to clean up your data. So imagine that there's, uh, there's a male shopper come to the site, but the machine learning was, was trained based on the majority of the data which is come from female shoppers. Of course they are biased because this is how machine learning work is to derive pattern from the data. And, and that's why I believe there are one of the opportunity in the coming years is definitely trying to figure a way to, to either personalize the results or figure a way to build a model that is more generalizable and can apply to a different scenario. So to some extent, reach will get a richer in data as well. It's like a, if all your data is is, is kind of in just collect from one uh, kind of specialized like a group of people, then of course these things are not generalizable. And, and this is definitely an opportunity to fix in the future. For sure. Yeah. So it's um, interesting. 
Tell me a little bit about why you're so excited about this emerging field of data observability. I think that uh, it is very important. Like uh, when you create a machine learning model, you will be able to interpret the, the behavior. So here's what I like my instinct told me, right? So the current development of machine learning, a lot of the technology is based on deep learning, which is a neural network solutions. And this kind of new solution, unlike the traditional statistical-based solution or tree-based solution, the, the classical solution, you know something work, but you don't know why the work. And sometimes you, if things are not working the way you want, you don't even know like what's going on. So um, to me, it's more about, I know I can always win this game, but I don't really know the rules. I think it's very dangerous. And I think somehow, um, I think machine learning is not to replace human, but to help us to, to solve the problem in a better way. And I think no matter you want to avoid bias, or you want to um, kind of uh, find the next breakthrough. I think it is very, very important for human to be able to, to be able to work with the data. And, and when I say work with data, the number one step is that you first you need to definitely know how to observe your model, observe your data. And also from there, you need to figure out how to interpret the data. So there are a lot of research these days, for example, they will tell you like as a human, the intuition, why machine uh, make such a decision, like say computer vision, right? So when I look at this, when I look at you, I, I pay attention to your face and I'm not paying attention to your background. So is your machine learning really pay attention to the subject or they pay attention to the background? I think if you will be able to tell that, then it will kind of help you understand why the outcome doesn't look like what you, you hope. I think this kind of interpretability will be very important, especially when we apply machine learning technology on computer vision, image processing, video understanding. I think it's actually tell like the attention of the machine that is will be very important for the future applications. Yeah, I think we're just getting started there. Um, Shusheng, you already mentioned one book that you like, Thinking in Bets. In this fast-paced world, how do you keep up with all these innovations and trends? Is it reading? Is it conferences, podcasts? And if so, what would you recommend to our listeners? Uh, you're asking my secret. <laughs> <laughs> yes, of course. That's what this podcast is all about. There are a few things I do. The first thing is that uh, I, I try to kill two birds with one stone. So I give back to the community by serving a lot of academic conference, also their senior program community. And in my career, I also serve as a chair in a workshop, for example. And the, the, this forced me to actually you know, read a lot of paper. Of course, like, uh, it's, it's hard work, it's not never easy. But the, on one hand, I give back to the community, stay close with the cutting edge like a technology, knowing what's coming next. On the other hand, that I kind of force myself to read a lot of paper because I have to, I just need to, this is part of the, the process of the work. I always believe that uh, the best way is to somehow create a work that uh, forces you to, to learn. Like, for example, for the, the podcast today, when we talk to each other, I will force myself, like, say, okay, people probably will ask me which book I read. So I probably should read more books, right? So I think that's, uh, <laughs> that's what I, I always tell myself is that. Uh, you need to incentive yourself to do the things that you hope you do, right? So I, I kind of, whenever I'm counting priorities, 
other than the regret minimization framework, another thing I will ask myself, is that possible something I hope to achieve? And if I do this job, then I can also achieve the, the long-term goals for my own career. And that's how I kind of reading papers, reading books, is to make sure that I have incentive myself to do such an activity. Yeah, or people, you don't have to read books, although I am an avid reader. Um, some people, it's more podcasts or articles or going to meetups, going to whether it's virtual or hopefully we'll get back to more in person soon. Well, it's been great having you on The Data Chief. I always like to end with one question, and I'm going to let you choose, depending on the mood you're in. Um, what are you most grateful for? Or if you think about something that's totally made you laugh out loud in the last year, what would that be? I think I'm most grateful is, honestly, to, to like, I think this paradigm shift, like, uh, I think we're talking about data, right? Like, uh, there are a lot of investment in a company and to enable remote work, which also means that data privacy, data protection is super, super important. And in the past, you know, you can easily protect them by saying that you can only come to the office, sitting in this building. That's how you keep your this kind of PII or personal identifiable data like a secure. But now you can because everyone work remotely using VPN, new logging, you invest in security, privacy, encryptions. And I think this investment is, is something that I'm really grateful for is that uh, today we are very fortunate as a data expert that we can actually work from anywhere. I think at the we are very remote friendly. So uh, the people can work from anywhere in the United States, they actually move around and, and, and no matter where they go, we create an infrastructure for them to, to be able to uh, actually access to the network. And I, I think for myself, it's, you know, as an executive, I usually travel a lot and I, I spend a lot at the work. And, but this year, I, I really appreciate that I have more time with my, my son. He's 10 years old and, and I'm trying to teach him Python. And that's his Oh, wow. There <laughs> you go. I a moment that, that uh, he never listened to me. And then he always invented his own syntax. That is really, really cool. I'm going to have to connect you to some others who have been teaching their kids Python and SQL in the last year in this pandemic. So that's a super cool one. It is. Thanks so much for being on The Data Chief. Thank you for having me here. Nice to talk to you. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Data Chief. To learn more about today's guest, recommend a future guest, or hear more of the show, head over to thedatachief.com. If you have questions for Cindy or comments about the episode, give her a shout by dropping your thoughts on LinkedIn and tagging Cindy Housen. Join her on LinkedIn Live the first Thursday of each month for a live version of The Data Chief, where she'll share best practices and take your questions live. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Every review helps more people discover the podcast and helps us improve our content. The Data Chief is brought to you by our friends at ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company. Finding insights in your company's data doesn't have to be complicated. All you need is search. With ThoughtSpot, anyone in your organization can easily answer their own data questions, find facts, and make better, faster decisions. Learn more at ThoughtSpot.com. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Data Chief. 
To learn more about today's guest, recommend a future guest, or hear more of the show, head over to thedatachief.com. If you have questions for Cindy or comments about the episode, give her a shout by dropping your thoughts on LinkedIn and tagging Cindy Housen. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Every review helps more people discover the podcast and helps us improve our content. The Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for anyone to analyze your company's data with search and AI. Business people at companies like Verizon, CVS, Amazon, Afterpay, OpenTable, and T-Mobile use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. And you can learn more at ThoughtSpot.com.